You're listening to a sermon from Redemption Church, Calgary South. We exist to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission by seeing the lost redeemed, the redeemed matured, and the matured multiplied for the glory of Jesus Christ. For more information, visit redemptioncalgarysouth.com. We're going to turn back to God's Word again today. We're going to be going back to Isaiah chapter 9. If you don't have a Bible in your hands, uh, we would uh, ask, uh, if you don't have one, just slide your hand up. The ushers will bring one to you, so you have God's Word at all times. And, uh, and if you don't have a copy of God's Word at home, take that. That is yours. We want God's uh, miraculous Word to be in your life and, and for the Spirit to be using that in your life and transforming you from uh, the inside out. So welcome, welcome here again. We're going to be turning again to Isaiah chapter 9. We're looking at verses 1 to 7, really focusing on uh, verse 7 and the names given to Jesus uh, Christ. But as you go there, I also want to ask you, as you're thinking about Christmas, as you're thinking about the nativity of Jesus, as you're thinking about the the story of Christ uh, being born in Bethlehem, being born to a virgin, uh, born in in a stable, wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in that manger... When you think about Jesus as a newborn baby, what kind of feelings rise up in your heart? What kind of thoughts uh, do you have as you think about that? What kind of affections do you feel as you think about that baby in the manger? This beautiful baby boy. I mean, is there anything more sweet than a brand new baby wrapped? For those parents... I just ask you to think back at the first time that you remember your own children when they were born and you've seen them for the very first time. You see their little sparkling eyes, their soft cheeks, their, their little peaceful breathing as they sleep. I love that. Just so blissful, just so peaceful. I remember when our boys were newborns. I remember how cute they were. Um, yes, they, they are cuter than baby Yoda. If anybody's watching The Mandalorian, you know. He's pretty cute, but not as cute as our babies. And uh, Kim and I thought our boys were the cutest. And we were wondering, who do they look like? What kind of personalities are they going to have? What kind of lives are they going to lead? And one of the biggest things we had to figure out was, what were we going to call them? What was their name going to be? And was their name going to match their personalities? Was it going to fit who they were going to become? Well, as we look at the scriptures again today, we see that our Savior was not only going to be called Jesus, he would be called a number of names. Because one name cannot contain the glory of who he is. As we return to Isaiah 9, verses 1 to 7, we see that this promised Christ child would not have just one name. He would have many names, and those names would reflect his character and his purpose Last week, we learned that his name was Wonderful Counselor. He shall be called Wonderful Counselor. We learned that Jesus had to to become our Wonderful Counselor. Because why? Because we are tragically foolish. We need supernatural wisdom. And so supernatural wisdom had to come down in the form of a man. Because in our nature, left to ourselves, in our foolishness, we were headed on a road to destruction. Jesus is our Wonderful Counselor counselor. But then as the prophecy continues, we see another name. Friends, we see another name for Jesus, Mighty God. 
And so when we think of Christmas and we think of Jesus, this beautiful baby boy wrapped in cloths, so sweet, so helpless as a little baby, we often think that Christmas is about love and joy and hope and peace. And Christmas is definitely all of those things. But as we look at this second name that is revealed here, Christmas also means something else. And it may not mean something that we quickly run to. What if I told you that with, with love and joy and peace and hope, Christmas also means war? Christmas means war. And is that reflected in the songs that we're singing? Is that reflected in the stories that we're telling? Is that coming into the thoughts that we're thinking? Brothers and sisters, Christmas means war. Christmas is about the incarnation of a mighty warrior. So let's go to the text and see what, we have, what the Lord has for us here. Isaiah 9, verses 1 to 7. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government, and of peace there will be no end, on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you uh, that we have your word open before us. We thank you that you speak to your people through what you have written. And you speak so perfectly. You speak so sufficiently. And you speak so powerfully. We thank you that your Holy Spirit uses the word in our hearts to transform us. And Lord, we ask you yet again, by your grace, by your mercy, to transform us, to renew our minds so that we would not be conformed to this world, but, but transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. And Lord, we know that happens by your word, by your spirit. And so today we pray as we gather as your people, this special gathering of this local church here in South Calgary, that your presence would be among us, that you would be working powerfully through your word. Move me aside. May what people hear come directly from your, your mouth through your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So we see that this promised son that was to be given shall be called Mighty God. Mighty God. As we ponder the joy and the beauty of the miraculous Christ, this, this Christ child, this Christmas, let us ponder his, this powerful name. 
the powerful name Mighty God. Friends, Christmas means war. Jesus came because you and I need a mighty warrior. We do. As we remember the context of this passage, we remember that the people of Israel and Judah were currently experiencing a season of great peace. They were experiencing abundance. As the opening chapters of Isaiah open, you can see that in their prosperity, the people were experiencing peace. But often, what comes with prosperity is apathy and wandering. The book of Isaiah reveals that the people of God were turning away from God. And they were turning to the world. And they were turning after false gods. They chose to leave the true and only God, the God that loved them first, and they chose to love the world. They gave themselves to immorality, gave themselves to sensuality, idolatry, and sin, and this angered God. Until he had enough of it. And so in his sovereignty, as, as the chapters of Isaiah unfold, God has plans to discipline his children. He plans to bring wrathful judgment upon them. And he did all of this so that they would know that he is the Lord, that he is the one who made the covenant with them. And so he sent them prophets. And in this case, we have the prophet Isaiah. And Isaiah was a prophet of both judgment and hope. And so as the days were drawing, judgment was coming, Assyria was coming to devastate the northern kingdom, Isaiah was prophesying. He was prophesying that, that there is a coming judgment that both Assyria and then later Babylon would come and destroy the kingdom. And so the very first five chapters of Isaiah, we see him pronouncing judgment upon Judah and Israel because they rejected God, because they loved the world, and they loved the evil that goes with it. Back in Isaiah 5, 20, we see Isaiah pronouncing some of this judgment. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. It kind of reminds you of the times that we are living in as well. And then in chapter 5, verse 24, it says that they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts. They have despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people, and he stretched out his hand against them and struck them. Ever since the beginning of time, mankind has been choosing evil over, over light. We have been choosing darkness over light. We have been choosing good over bad. We've been choosing sin over righteousness. And in this instant, the Lord has had enough. His patience has run out, and he sovereignly chooses to discipline his children. One commentator says this. He says, Assyria is the axe with which Yahweh will hew down the rotted tree of Israel. Like I said last week, that the judgment of God was due to his anger over the sin of his people. But even amidst the judgment, God's love still prevails. Right? God disciplines those he loves. And so with this judgment we see coming here, we also see hope. Isaiah was a prophet of judgment and hope. 
And Isaiah is prophesying here that out of the darkness, out of the gloom of this Assyrian invasion in chapter 8, in chapter 9, like we just read, it says there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness because of their sin, because of judgment, on them has light shone. Hope. Because of their sin, God judged them, but in the judgment, there is hope. They're in darkness, but God is sending light. And then in verse 3 of chapter 9, Isaiah it says, you have multiplied the nation. This is really revealing that, that there is blessing coming. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, right? This is joy and blessing returning to God's people as he turns away his judgment and turns towards them in blessing. And then it says that they are glad when they divide the spoil. Pay close attention to that today. To divide the spoil here reveals that there's a military victory. As God's people loved the world, and as God used the world against them in his sovereignty, he also promises to free them from the world. The people of Israel needed a mighty warrior. They needed a warrior to come and to conquer the world. Which leads us to our first point. Jesus came because you and I need a mighty warrior to battle our world. Now, the title Mighty God comes from the Hebrew El Gibor. El means God. Gibor means mighty warrior, mighty hero. Isaiah prophesies even greater than just a temporary salvation from Assyria. He's prophesying that mankind not only needs a mighty warrior, but a mighty warrior God. As Israel continues, there are leaders that come and help free them. But Isaiah is speaking of greater than those men. It can't be just a man. It has to be a God-man. And he has to be a mighty warrior God. So this child that is promised, this child that is to be born, this son that is given, this ruler of rulers is going to be more than just a man. He's going to be a mighty warrior God. That's why I'm saying that Christmas is about war. It's about a mighty warrior God. As the people were so attracted to the trappings of this world, you and I are attracted to the same things, right? We're prone to all of these kinds of things, especially amidst prosperity, especially when we have peace. Prosperity and peace fosters idolatry, immorality, temptation, and sin. And let me ask you, has there ever been a more prosperous, peaceful time across our globe than right now? Especially in the West. We're living in a time of greatest peace in 70 years in the West. You know, even with our challenging economy here in Calgary, we are a prosperous people. We have so much. We are free 
And we celebrate our freedom. And that is good. But how is our freedom and our prosperity working for us spiritually right now? You need to ask yourselves, is our current prosperity, is our current peace leading us to love God or to love the world? It doesn't take much research today to see that the love of the world is growing over the love of God. The world is growing darker and darker around us. Truth is being rejected. Morality is being distorted. Immorality and idolatry are being embraced normalized, and it's only increasing. We live in a fallen world that needs to be conquered, a fallen world that needs to be battled. You know, when the, when the New Testament speaks about the world, it uses the, the word cosmos, the Greek word cosmos, and it's used 186 times in the New Testament, and, and more often than not, when it's used, it often has an evil connotation to it. When the New Testament speaks about the world, evil and hostility towards God is often attached to that word. In the parable of the soils, Jesus spoke about a seed that is sown among thorns. He says in Matthew 13, 22, As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. Colossians 2.8, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. 1 John 2.15-16, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world, the cosmos. So just like the people of Israel, the world is stealing affections away from God. And it needs to be battled. Therefore, we need a mighty warrior God. This has been the story from the beginning of time. We need a mighty warrior of God. We need him because we can't fight it on our own. We can't turn away from it on our own. We can't battle the world on our own because apart from Christ, we have no power. We have no strength. We have no ability. We have no way. Apart from Christ, we have no spiritual life. If you remember Ephesians 2, 1 to 2, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the cosmos, the world. Apart from Christ, we are the walking dead. We are the walking dead, following lies, following the trappings of this world. Without Jesus, we are spiritually dead, and we're following the world blindly to our own destruction. So when, when I was a kid, we had a, on our back deck, we had a bug zapper. Anybody have a bug zapper when you were a kid on your back deck? All right, so that, that zapper is a big unit, and it has this bright neon light right at the center of it. And I think it would track any kind of bug within a mile of our house. And as a bug is flying this way, it sees that light and it drops everything it's doing and heads towards the light. It's so attracted to the light, it's so appealing, and it flies right into the light. And it doesn't know that as soon as it touches the light, it's dead. Instant death. 
And that's our world. Our world masquerades as light. It attracts, it entices, it promises satisfaction, it promises fulfillment, and we fall in love with it. We fall in love with the world. We fall in love with the very thing that traps and destroys us. That's why Jesus had to come. Jesus came because we need a mighty warrior. We need a mighty warrior God. We need him to battle our world for us. And so the good news is that because of the promise, there was a mighty warrior God coming. And for us that stand on this side of history, Jesus already came 2,000 years ago. It wasn't veiled for us. We see it clearly because it's written in Scripture. We can see it clearly that we can be set free from the grip of death. We can be set free from that temptation towards that attraction to the darkness. We can be set free. Colossians talks about us being in a domain of darkness, and we've been set free from that domain of darkness. John 16.33 says, in this world, you're going to have tribulation, but we're to take heart. Why? Because Jesus has overcome the world. He is our mighty, triumphant God warrior. 1 John 5.4.5 says, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. Friends, we overcome the world because Christ overcome the world. We can't overcome the world on our own. When we are found in Jesus Christ, when we are born again, born of the Spirit, we become overcomers of the world. Not because of what we have done, but because of what Christ has done. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Christmas means war. Jesus came because you and I need a mighty warrior to battle our world. And as you continue to study Scripture, we know that he didn't just come to battle the world. As Isaiah was prophesying about this coming mighty warrior, the war that needed to be waged was not just with the world. It was not just a war from without. It's a war within. Jesus had to come as a mighty warrior God also to conquer our hearts. To conquer our hearts. As impossible as it is to battle and conquer the powers and the temptations that are outside of us, it's just as impossible for us to battle the war within on our own. Ephesians 2 shows us that we're dead, right? We're spiritually dead. And it shows us that in that deadness, we're following the world. And as we follow the world, we're following the prince of the power of the air. We're following Satan, And his evil is at work within us, not just outside of us, within us. It says that we are sons of disobedience. Ephesians 2, 3. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. It's a war within 
So the temptation and the enticement towards sin are, are not only from the outside, it's from the inside. It's an internal problem. In fact, if you remember our study in the book of Mark, in chapter 7, remember Jesus saying this, he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All of these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. That's what we're seeing in the people of Isaiah. They're giving themselves to all of those things that comes from within. And the mighty warrior came to battle within. He came to battle within the heart. Even if every temptation were taken away from outside of ourselves, we would still have a battle within. If our hearts are not dealt with, we lose the war. And so Jesus came for our hearts. Our hearts, as we learned recently, are the center of our passions and our desires. And so when all humanity fell in the garden with Adam and Eve, our desires, our passions fell with them. We turned away from desiring God and we turned to desire ourselves. Our passion was no longer for God. Our passion was for evil desires. If you don't believe me, go to James 1, 14 to 15. I'll put it on the screen. Each person is tempted when he is lured and entired, or enticed by what? By his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. We're enticed by our own desire. So even if we remove everything outside of ourselves, we have an inner problem. The outworking of sin we're seeing in James here starts with inward temptation. It starts with the flesh. It starts in our hearts. The external sin problem that we're facing is first born in a fallen heart. For example, just think about the last argument you had or the last uh, disagreement you had with somebody. What started all of that? Where did that begin? James 4.1 what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? There's a war going on inside. And we have to know this, that Jesus didn't start the war. We started the war. And he came as a baby 2,000 years ago to invade our hearts and to battle to engage that war within. That's why I'm saying Christmas means war. So let me ask you, what desires are in your heart right now that Jesus has come to battle and to have victory over? What fallen passions are still waging war within you? What fallen desires has the mighty warrior come to destroy? 
What has he destroyed already? And what is he about to destroy? Or do you think that your problems are too hard for him? Your war is too big for him. Friends, I'll remind you and preach this until the day I'm dead that nothing is too big for God. No battle is too great. No problem is too large for him. Jeremiah 32, 27. Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? It's a rhetorical question. Nothing is too hard for God. Everything is possible with God. Even your darkest, most embarrassing problems are no match for the mighty warrior king. Jesus is after your heart. He wants your soul. He doesn't just deal with the outside. He doesn't want to just change your behavior. He wants to change your heart. Because the process for true, spiritual, lasting change cannot happen from the outside. It has to happen from the inside out. You see, the people of Israel, were, they were worshiping false gods. They were worshiping idols. They were worshiping things that were made by their hands because their hearts are prone to idolatry, just like us. We love our idolatry. We love to worship other things. John Calvin said, man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. And apart from Christ, our hearts are idol factories. We just produce them from within. But Jesus came to battle your heart, to cleanse you from within. And it's only then that you can have true, everlasting change. This was promised back in Ezekiel 36. Don and I were talking about this this morning. Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove that heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. I never tire of reading that and hearing that myself. It reminds me of of my need for a mighty warrior God to cleanse me from idolatry. Christianity is a heart religion. Whether you're struggling with lust, greed, depression, anxiety, fear, anger, foolishness, hostility, you name it, any sin, any sinful tendency, any sinful idol, the battle always begins in the heart. And only a mighty warrior can engage that battle. You can't do it on your own. So let me ask you, have you welcomed that warrior into your heart? Is the spirit at work within you? Have you turned away from your sin, turned away from your, your idolatry? You know those idols that are being produced out of your heart? They always overpromise and underdeliver. They never fully satisfy. They will always lead you astray. They'll always lead you to guilt and to shame. They will lead you to destruction. So let me ask you, have you cried out to this warrior 
God, this mighty warrior God in, in repentance and faith? Have you expressed your desperate need for him to come in and make war in your heart? Have you exposed your warring soul to the only one who can win the battle? Christmas means war. And Jesus has come to conquer our hearts. So he's come as a mighty warrior to battle the world. He's come as a mighty warrior to conquer our hearts. And thirdly, we see that he's come as a mighty warrior to destroy our enemy. So as Isaiah here is prophesying about light coming, out of, coming into the darkness, he's talking about this coming harvest, he's talking about this spoil to, to be divided, he's also speaking about victory over the enemy. So Isaiah 9, looking at verses 4 to 5, we see again, For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. If you remember the story of Gideon, you remember the story of him and his battle with the Midianites. You know, as Gideon started out with 32,000 soldiers, the Lord reduced that army down to just 300 men. And then with those last 300 men, all they had to do was break jars and blow trumpets, and the Midianites destroyed themselves. Because of the Lord. Because of a mighty warrior God. Not because of 300 men. So what Isaiah is saying here is that we're to remember what the Lord has done. Remember what was done at Midian, how God broke the enemy. What Isaiah is saying here is that this future warrior God is going to have the same power as God. It can't be just a man. It has to be a God-man. Because Jesus is God. That's good theology. He's 100% God, 100% man. And he has come to have complete and total victory over our enemy. Verse 5, for every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. This is complete devastation. This is complete victory. There won't even be a hint of the enemy when this is all done. Everything will be burned. Throughout the history of Scripture, God is constantly referred to as a mighty God. He's constantly referred to as the awesome, the powerful God who saves his people from their enemies. Isaiah says three chapters later that judgment is going to happen through Assyria in Babylon but God is going to save a remnant of his people. In that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will, be no, will, will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. In truth, a remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to who? To the mighty God. Same terminology for God. As God sovereignly used the oppression of the Assyrians and then the Babylons, these are enemy nations. And he uses them to judge his people, to discipline his people whom he loves. 
and then he plans to rescue them through a mighty warrior. In the Old Testament, we see God's strength being referred to as his mighty hand. His mighty hand and his outstretched arm. Deuteronomy 4.34 Or has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation by trials, by signs, by wonders, and by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and by great deeds of terror, all which the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes? God's salvation always requires war, war against an enemy. And that's true throughout all of Scripture. Any enemy in this book cannot stand against the mighty hand and outstretched arm of God. Because he is the all-powerful one. He is the almighty. And Isaiah is prophesying that a mighty God has to come. A mighty, powerful one. The same God of the Old Testament, but in a man, Jesus Christ. And so this baby boy that we celebrate at Christmas the one who came to live without sin, the one who came to take our sin upon himself. He is this mighty warrior. You know, as we've been studying the life and ministry of Jesus through the Gospel of Mark, we see glimpses of his mighty hand and outstretched arm. We see him casting out demons. And when those demons would come out of people, they would say, like in Mark one twenty four, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. When Jesus healed another man possessed by a demon in Mark 5, this legion of demons cries out, what have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? The demons know that he is mighty God. Then that demon asks him, I adjure you by God, do not torment me. And then what happens? Jesus casts out those demons. He allows them to go into a herd of 2,000 pigs. And what happens with the pigs? They go straight for the water, straight for the sea to destroy themselves. They don't want to be in the presence of this terrifying warrior, God, who's going to destroy them. So we see glimpses of his power in his ministry. The enemy wants nothing to do with Jesus. The enemy knows that Jesus was sent to destroy them, that he is the one who's been promised since Genesis 3.16, that he is the one who is going to crush the head of Satan. He is going to be the one that's going to have true and lasting victory over our enemy. But instead of his victory coming through a mighty hand, in an outstretched arm in battle. The victory comes from his arms being stretched out on a cross, from nails being plunged into his outstretched hands. That's how the mighty warrior God battles the enemy. That's how we fought for your soul. That's how he fought for your heart. That's how he defeated our enemy. That's how he makes war. 
He made war through humility. He made war through grace. He made war through love. And then he bled and he died and he absorbed the wrath of God for what? For our sin. We don't deserve this. That's why he had to come. That's why he had to rise from the grave three days later. He conquered the power of sin. He conquered the power of death. He conquered the power of Satan. He had to become a mighty warrior God. Because it's a battle that we couldn't face. He took the battle in our place, and he won by sacrificing himself for us. Hebrews 2.14 Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. 1 John 3.8 The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. He had to come to destroy our devil. As you think about the Christ child in the manger with his beautiful, soft little hands, remember that those little hands wouldn't gain victory by swinging a sword. Those hands gained victory by receiving the nails that you and I deserve. And so we ask ourselves, do we believe this? Do we trust in this? Is this the way? As Jesus was on the cross, what did he say? He said, it's finished. The power of death has been removed from the hands of the devil, and Jesus sets the captives free. And ever since then, the devil's days are numbered. Even more than that, Jesus is coming back to finish what he started. In the book of Revelation, we get glimpses of this. We see Jesus coming back as a mighty warrior. He came first in humility. The next time he comes back, he comes in power. He comes in terrifying glory. Revelation 19, 11 to 16. The apostle Paul is seeing this in a vision. He writes, he says, I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. He's a warrior. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has the name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dripping in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword." with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, his, he has a name written, King of King and Lord of Lords. That's this mighty warrior God, born 2,000 years ago in a stable. Is that not a mighty warrior God, if you have ever heard one? Is that not a God worth following? Total victory. He comes first in humility, but his return is going to be in fury and in wrath to destroy the enemy, to destroy the armies of Satan for once and for all. Revelation 20 talks about this, that there is a final war coming between Jesus and Satan's armies. Revelation 20, verse 9 to 10, And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. 
but fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Nothing can stand in the way of our great warrior God, Jesus Christ. What a day that's going to be. When the enemy of God and all of his minions are cast into the lake of fire to be destroyed forever and ever, what a mighty warrior we have in Jesus Christ. That's a God worth following. That's an army worth joining. That's a song worth singing. As a child, I I played a little bit of piano. Yeah, a one-armed guy can play piano. A little bit. In our house, we had this big green book at the piano. It was the Reader's Digest songbook. And at the back, there were hymns. And one of those hymns that I would play was called A Mighty Fortress Is Our God, written by the great reformer Martin Luther. Just listen to these lyrics as you're thinking about Christmas and thinking about this mighty warrior God, Jesus Christ. He writes, A mighty fortress is our God. A bulwark, never failing. Our helper he amid the flood and mortal ills of mortal ills prevailing. For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate on earth is not his equal. We can't fight Satan on our own. We need a mighty warrior God. Did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Dost ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he, the Lord of hosts, his name, from age to age the same, and he must win the battle. That is your warrior king. That is Jesus. That is our Christ that is our great warrior. So as we prepare for Christmas, as we ponder this child born in Bethlehem, let us remember that Christmas means war. Jesus had to come as a mighty warrior God to battle our world, to conquer our hearts, and to defeat and destroy our enemy forever. Let us worship that mighty warrior. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for, again, always being so faithful to teach us. I thank you that this week in my preparation that you're teaching me, you're you're guiding me, you're preparing my heart, you're convicting me, you're, you're doing your work on me first. I thank you for my mighty warrior king, Jesus. We thank you for that here this morning. We sing of his greatness. We sing of the king of kings. We sing of the wonderful counselor the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Lord, we thank you that Christmas does mean war. It means love, joy, peace, all of these great things, but it also means war. We wouldn't have those things apart from our great warrior coming to make war. Lord, we're sorry that we started the war. We're sorry that we rebelled against you, and we come to you in repentance and faith today asking for you to change us, to change us from the inside out.
as you battle the world around us, as you conquer our hearts, and as you have defeated and will fully and completely destroy our enemy. We praise you today and thank you in the name of King Jesus.